Uh, please turn in your Bible to John chapter 11. Um, I'll be reading uh, verses 55 through chapter 12, verses 11. <clears throat> now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Many therefore took a excuse me. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii?" and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning and another opportunity to gather. And we thank you for your word. And we just pray that you be with Brad as he shares from it this morning and be with us as we receive it. In Jesus' name. We're singing about the birth of Jesus this morning. We're decorated for Christmas and everything that goes along with that, but in the text of John, we're actually entering the final week of Jesus' life on earth. This is the final week of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1, as Jacob just read, says, six days before the Passover Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Six days before the Passover, this is the final Passover, Jesus, Jesus comes into Bethany. And the big question of, of, of verses 55 through 57 that you just heard read is, is really, is Jesus going to show up? Is he going to show up in Jerusalem for the Passover feast? Is he going to come? It was dangerous for him to come and is he going to really show up or is he not? And verse 57 says that they were looking to arrest Jesus if he did. If he's going to come, we're going to arrest him, the Jewish leaders were saying there. So is he going to show up in Jerusalem? And we read in verse 1 of chapter 12, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. And you say, well, sounds like he's not. He's going to go to Bethany instead of Jerusalem. But you need to understand that Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. And on Jesus' way to Jerusalem, He is going to Jerusalem. And on His way to Jerusalem, He makes one last stop 
in Bethany before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem is that's about to happen. Jesus therefore came to Bethany. There's purpose here. Jesus is a wanted man, but he's not going to run and hide. You see purpose here. He therefore came to Bethany. And the timing of this event, or this whole week, is sovereignly ordained. John goes to great lengths to point out what's happening this week. It's the Passover. It's the Passover. This is the week of the Passover, and it's no coincidence that this is when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Now, this is the third Passover celebration recorded in John. It's the third one, but this is the most important Passover celebration that there will ever have been. Everything pointed toward this. They celebrated the past Passover almost every year for 1,300 years, roughly. But this Passover is entirely different. And John wants you to know, this is the week of the Passover. Is Jesus coming to Jerusalem? Yes. This very week would be what all those hundreds of years of celebrating was all about, and they didn't have a clue. The disciples didn't even have a clue. Do you remember what the Passover was all about? I hope you do. I think you probably do if you've been in church for very long. The Passover points all the way back to the Exodus there, where the Jewish people, the Hebrews, were enslaved in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver them out. And Egypt didn't want to let them go, so there was a series of plagues, and the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of every household was going to be killed, but there was a, a, a caveat there for the people of God. The people of God were to take a lamb, and they were to slaughter that lamb, and they were to take the blood of that lamb and smear it over the doorpost of their house. And when the death angel came and saw the houses that were covered by the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house. Thus, the people of God were spared, were saved, were delivered by the blood of that lamb. That was the Passover. And they've been celebrating God's deliverance by the blood of that lamb. And they've been doing it for over a thousand years. And it's no coincidence that, that this is the week that Jesus will enter Jerusalem for the Passover and become the lamb slain. Whose blood is the ultimate deliverance. All of Jerusalem's caught up in the drama. The question of whether Jesus would show up was the talk of the town. The chief priest, you know, they had made it known that they were looking for Jesus. They might not have even come out and said, everybody, hey, we want to arrest him, but hey, let us know if you find Jesus. You know, verse 56, it's kind of like, uh, do you think he's going to come? I don't know. What do you think? Is he going to show up or not? There's a lot of anticipation, but for all the wrong things and for all the wrong reasons. Before Jesus entered Jerusalem for what would be known as the Passion Week, there's one more significant prophetic event that's going to take place. And that's what we have in the text today. That's what's highlighted. John's saying, hey, Passover's here. This is taking place. This is where we're going. But before he enters Jerusalem, there's one more incredible event that takes place. And that's going to be the focus of our passage today in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Today's event was a celebration of the one who gives life. 
It's a celebration of the one who gives life. And it's also recorded, by the way, in Matthew and Mark. And we're going to be referring to those a little bit as we go through this. Sometimes it gives a little bit more detail maybe to fill in some of the blanks. Now we remember what happened that just happened in John chapter 11. Stacy's been preaching about that for the past few weeks now. It was the raising of Lazarus, right? Lazarus died. They wanted Jesus to come. Jesus delayed coming. Lazarus died. And four days later, Jesus comes. And what does he do? He'd been dead for four days. He raises Lazarus from the dead. An incredible miracle. This isn't just giving sight to a blind person or or healing somebody with this disease or somebody that's lame. He raised somebody from the dead. It was an incredible, incredible event. Some believed and some did not. And they went and told the Pharisees and the Pharisees were mad and they wanted to kill Jesus. So we're told that Jesus therefore went into the wilderness He left. Why did he do that? Because the time was almost, but not yet, right? So he went off into the wilderness. And now Jesus is coming back to Bethany where he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so what do they do? They're they're, they're throwing a feast for him. They're preparing a special dinner in honor of Jesus. The Bible says here. So they have this dinner in honor of of Jesus. uh, Certainly a celebration of what Jesus had done for Lazarus and even just who he was. They loved Jesus. You also note that Matthew 26, this is an area where he, Matthew 26 gives a little bit more detail. When we read this, we might assume that this, this dinner is happening at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but it's not. Matthew tells us that it's happening in the house of Simon the leper. Matthew 26, Simon the leper. Now that's interesting. Because one thing we absolutely know is that they're not having the feast in the house of somebody with leprosy. That was considered unclean. And they they knew enough about contagiousness and things in that day to know that they had to be separated. They're not having the feast in the house of somebody who has leprosy, but it's in the house of Simon the leper. What does that mean? What does that mean? You don't get that name unless you have the disease. You also know you don't have a dinner in your house if that's you. So what does it tell you? I think it means that this would have been Simon, the former leper. They didn't have effective treatments for leprosy in that day. If you had leprosy, you had leprosy. They didn't have great ways to treat it. And it's not a stretch at all to assume that Jesus healed this man. I think it's incredibly likely because we know he did that. So, they're having a dinner to honor Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead in the home of a man that he most likely cured from leprosy. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine sitting around that table? You have, you have Jesus there and he's with Lazarus. We're told Lazarus is there. He was dead for four days. He's reclining at this table with Jesus. And we say, we think sitting around the table, it didn't work that way. They didn't have tables and chairs that day. They reclined. They actually laid on their side around this table. And he's laying there and Jesus is there and Lazarus is there. And Simon, who was a leper, was there. The disciples and Mary and Martha. 
beautiful picture. Imagine that scene. And it just, stop, it just causes you to stop right there and say, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is incredible. And Mary certainly saw it. She certainly knew it. And from what we read in the text, more than anybody else, Mary got it. She absolutely got it. And that brings us to the act. That's kind of the focal point of this passage, the act. What is this act? Well, let me just say this about it. It was an act of extravagant and sacrificial love with the prophetic purpose. Extravagant and sacrificial love with the prophetic purpose. Look at verses 2 and 3. So they gave a dinner for him there. Mary served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now we're told that Martha, Martha was serving. That's kind of the pattern for Martha, right? She's the servant. She is that worker bee who's always busy, who's always serving, is always doing that. She's a servant. I think sometimes Martha gets a hard time. We have another example earlier in the Gospels where, where, where Martha's serving and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And Martha's kind of upset because Mary's not helping. Jesus says, Martha, she's doing what's better, the most important thing. We don't want to knock Martha, though, because being a servant is a great thing in Scripture, and that is the heart of Martha. That's, she's serving, she's serving. It's not the ultimate thing, though. It's not the ultimate thing. Martha's serving. It says, Mary, though, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Now, what is that all about? A pound, expensive ointment... Ointment made from pure nard. Well, first of all, that's a litre, that's a Roman pound, that's about 11 and a half ounces, just a little bit less than what we would have as a pound today. It's pure nard. You know what nard is? You probably don't, because it's not something we run into. It's not something we deal with. It's, it's this amber-colored, aromatic oil that comes from, like, the Himalayas, in the highlands of India and China. It's not something that's just readily available. This stuff was imported in. That's probably part of the reason that it's, it's expensive, it says in the text here, and some of the other accounts in Matthew and Mark, it says it was very expensive. So this, this, this ointment, this, this oil, this nard, we call it spike nard today, from, that comes from a certain flower, but it was imported in. It's very expensive. It was a Aromatic, it was fragrant, it's described as a, a perfume, and that it's very expensive. And Judas helps us understand by just how expensive it was by saying, you know, hey, you could sell this for 300 denarii. Denarii. You say, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. Is that a lot? Well, a, a denarii was a day's wage for a laborer. So Judas makes the claim that this could be sold for 300 days wages. 300 days wages. That's a lot. That's a lot. By the way, today the average work days in a year is about 260. No doubt that they likely worked more than we do. But this would still come 
very close to a whole year's salary. A whole year's wages. Very expensive. We know that in ancient times, this nard, the spike nard as it's called today, was sometimes used to anoint the bodies of someone for burial when they died. Likely not the whole jar, very likely just a small amount. It's a, it's a perfume, it's a, they're on, uh, aromatic bodies when they're laid in the tomb. They, in that process, they begin to stink. This probably offset that somewhat. That's important, just know it was often used in that context, likely to counteract that odor. But I want you to note what Mary does here. So we know, we know that she took this expensive nard. She takes the ointment and she anoints Jesus' feet with it and she wipes his feet with her hair. We get some additional neat details in Matthew and in Mark. Matthew 26 says it's an alabaster flask or alabaster jar and that it was, it was poured on his head. Mark says the same thing, this alabaster was poured on his head. John records the feet aspect of it. So she takes this, and Mark actually tells us she breaks the thing. Okay, She breaks this alabaster jar, she pours it from his head to his feet, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. You may be sitting out there and saying, that sounds so gross. But that's exactly what she did. Why? Why did she do it? It's very similar to an act that also happened in Luke chapter 7, a different event. This was in the house of a Pharisee, and the Bible says that a sinful woman, think prostitute, came in and also took an alabaster jar of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped it with her hair. We don't know that it was the same thing. The Bible doesn't tell us that. And they didn't fuss at her because it was expensive or anything like this. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was something different. But that Jesus would allow a sinful woman to touch him. That was the problem then. In that act of devotion. This is a little different. Similar but a different event than Luke 7. And what we do know, what we can absolutely see is that this was unquestionably extravagant and sacrificial. You don't just have a lot of these sitting around. It's extravagant, it's sacrificial, and it was unquestionably an act of incredible love and devotion. In fact, Jesus in Matthew says, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. And in in verse 13 in Matthew 26, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. For all time, when the gospel goes out, we're going to be talking about what she did here. And we look at that, and there's maybe a temptation to look at this exactly like they looked at it and said, that is disgusting. I can't believe she would do that. I would never take my hair and wipe somebody's dirty feet with that. You know, I'm a a big fan of the Rocky movies. I know that's jumping gears here a little bit, but we're coming back, okay? Rocky, I love the Rocky movies, the old ones, the original ones. And uh, and I think it's Rocky 3, where Jesus, or Jesus, (laughs) scratch all that. (laughs) Jesus is not in Rocky 3. (laughs) 
He's being taunted, Rocky is, by Mr. T, if y'all remember in Rocky Three. He's got to fight him. And so Rocky's fired up, and he wants to fight him. Mick, his trainer, the old man Mick that's training, G, that's training Rocky, says, you can't fight him. There's no way. I don't want to set that up. I'm not going to allow you to fight him. And, and Rocky's saying, why, why, why? And they're arguing, and Mick says this to Rocky. He says, because the worst thing happened to you that could happen to any fighter, you've become civilized. You've become civilized. And I thought about this as I was thinking this, because I mean, here we are, we're sophisticated people, right? We're, we're sophisticated, we're civilized people, and they're in that room, they probably thought, you know, Judas and these, the rest of the disciples, everybody else, they probably thought they were fairly, you know, sophisticated too. And here comes Mary, and she just gets completely uncivilized, unsophisticated, undignified, you might even want to say, and takes down her hair and cleans the dirty feet of Jesus with this very expensive perfume. And I almost wonder sometimes are we a little bit too civilized? Are we a little bit too dignified? Think of David in the Old Testament where they finally bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And they bring the ark and David just blows a nerve in worship. He's overwhelmed with worship and he, he, he actually is just stripped down to these priestly undergarments and he's dancing before the Lord. And you know he gets rebuked for it. That's so undignified. What are you thinking? He says, I'll become even more undignified than this. He was overcome, overwhelmed with worship. And that's exactly what we see with Mary here. Uncivilized, extravagant, sacrificial, an incredible act of love that Jesus said, for all time when the gospel goes out, you're going to be talking about her and what she did here in memory of her. But it was also prophetic of what would happen within the next week. This is really interesting. Now Jesus, Jesus is going to be crucified and buried in that tomb less than a week from now. We realize less from, than a week from now, Jesus is six days, He's going to be crucified and then buried in this tomb. Less than a week, that's what's going to happen. Now, I don't know what Mary knew and what she didn't know. I don't know how much she realized about all this. Certainly, she had probably heard Jesus because I know the disciples had heard Jesus talk about the fact that He was going to die, even though they seemed to still not get it. I don't know if Mary fully understood or not, or if this was just an, an act of the overflow of her love for Jesus. But what she's doing here is prophetic. So we see in verse 7, Jesus say, Leave her alone, as he's rebuking Jesus. We'll get to that in just a minute. Leave it alone so that she may keep it, and we'll come back to that too, for the day of my burial. So Jesus says, listen, ultimately this has something to do with my burial. In Matthew 26, 12 and Mark 14, 8, make that a little bit more clear. It says, in pouring the ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Mark says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is pointing to something. She's anointing the body of Jesus for His burial. I don't know how much of that she understood, but 
it was prophetic. Whatever else this might be, it is certainly extravagant and sacrificial love with the prophetic purpose. It is love without restraint. I love that. She was not going to be restrained. Surely everyone in that room was stunned with what they were seeing. At least they were until Judas jumps in. Judas is going to chime in now. We see the reaction of Judas, verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who, he was about, who was about to betray him. By the way, anytime in the Gospel of John they refer to Judas, there's always a parenthesis there to point to who he really was. So Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So what do we have here? We have selfish contempt disguised as virtue. We have selfish contempt disguised as virtue. So Judas, I mean, you have this beautiful scene going on, and right in the middle of it, it's ruined because Jesus, or because Judas chimes in. He speaks up. John, by the way, John tells us that it's Judas that's actually speaking up, but the other Gospels make it clear that the other disciples were actually jumping in as well. What does that mean? It likely means that Judas speaks up, he jumps in, and so what do other people do? He's influencing, right? He's leading others that are also chiming in. This is such a waste. I can't believe she did this. The others ultimately chimed in as well. John makes it clear that he's a wolf among the sheep and a dangerous one. In chapter 6, he's referred to, Jesus says, and one of you is the devil, talking about Judas. And now here he looks like he's leading the other disciples in a bad direction as well. So Jesus, yeah, Jesus rebukes him, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Here's the deal, though. Judas makes it sound so virtuous, does he not? I mean, Judas, here he is. He's going to speak up. He's going to speak into this, and he's going to make it sound like, come on, guys, we've got to consider the greater thing, the, the, the greater implications of this. You could sell this for 300 denarii and give it to the poor, and here in just a matter of a few minutes, you're wasting it all. That's how he saw it. Just think of all the poor people we could help with that money. And you're just going to waste it. Mark tells us that they scolded Mary for the waste. Was Judas really concerned about the poor? John answers that and says, no, he's not concerned about the poor. He was a thief. He was himself dipping in. He kept the money, but he was the treasurer, basically. And he was dipping in for himself. He's not really concerned about the poor. Why, Judas is saying, why would you waste all that valuable stuff on anointing the feet of Jesus? Because unlike Mary, he saw no virtue in that at all. He sounded virtuous, but it was really, it was selfish contempt. Judas' words 
turned that beautiful atmosphere toxic. Can you imagine? I mean, you have this beautiful scene, this beautiful atmosphere, and now it's just made toxic by these words of Judas. So what's going to happen? Well, I don't think it's any surprise Jesus is going to rebuke him. We have the rebuke of Jesus, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is going to rebuke Judas. Now we've already seen that Jesus acknowledges that what Mary is doing is pointing to something bigger, something higher than just this event. It's, it's pointing to his, his death and His burial. Ultimately, His resurrection. We've already seen that it's, it's pointing to that. Now, let me just say, Judas, again, he sounds virtuous, right? What about the poor? We could help so many poor people with this money. Jesus says, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. You may hear that and say, well, that doesn't sound really right. Seems like it'd make a lot more sense to me than to give it to the poor and help all these poor people than just for a few minutes of, of a worshipful act. Does Jesus not care about the poor? And we know that Jesus talked a lot about helping the poor. It was a huge theme in His ministry. Blessed are the poor. The call, the need to help the poor is huge in the ministry of Jesus. So yes, Jesus cared about the poor very, very much. Is it good to help the poor? Yes. Does Jesus want us to help the poor? Yes. Do you know what's more important than helping the poor? The uncontainable love and worship of Jesus. That's what's more important. The uncontainable overflow of love and worship of Jesus. I think there's something else that uh, we see in Jesus' rebuke of Judas that's important. Jesus says, now listen to the words he uses here. He says, leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. Leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. What is, he, what is the it? What is it that Mary is going to keep here for the day of Jesus' burial that Jesus is telling Judas, Judas, you be quiet so that she can keep this for the day of my burial. What is the it there? Keep what? I don't think it's the ointment. I don't think it's this nard. Mark tells us that she broke it and she poured it from his, on his head and now on his feet. There's no doubt that part of the reason that Judas thought it was such a waste because it's gone. I don't think it's the anointment. The anointment's gone. The ointment is, excuse me, the ointment is gone. So I don't think it's the keep it it is the ointment. So what is it that Judas is ruining here for her that she's going to keep until the day of the burial? I think it's the deep significance. I think it's the meaning. I think it's the love. I think it's the devotion. I think it's the joy that she is expressing in this act of worship that will carry her through on the day when Jesus is laid in the grave. And it's being stolen away from her right now by Judas in his false virtue. 
Her love and worship are so deep and they're so real. And they're, they're what's going to sustain her for what lies ahead. And it's being robbed by Judas's self, selfish contempt described, this, disguised as virtue. Let me say this. Don't be a Judas. Don't be a Judas. By the way, it's really easy sometimes to fall into this kind of trap. We're dignified, right? We're sophisticated. We're civilized. Don't be a Judas. Do not hinder joy in worship. I've seen nonsense like this in a church before. There are people who can always find a reason to be critical of someone who's genuinely trying to worship and serve. Don't hinder joy in worship. Steer clear of those kind of people. This leads us, though, to an uncomfortable reality that's coming to a head here in the text. The uncomfortable reality is that Jesus divides. Jesus divides. And we read that and we say, no, he comes to, he, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he's the unifier, but Jesus divides. Look in verses 9 through 11. When, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what's happening here? What is it that's going on? Well, news kept getting out about what Jesus was teaching and what he was doing. And when you raise somebody from the dead, that word gets around. So this word is getting out. Jesus, people are hearing what Jesus is doing. And as a result, many of the Jews were believing in Jesus, it tells us in the text. So these Jewish leaders, man, they are fired up about this. They say, but we can't have this. We cannot have that because we don't want them to believe in Jesus. And if they follow him, they're not going to follow us. Because we're not following him. But he raised this guy Lazarus from the dead, so what are we going to do? How do we compete with that? I know what we'll do. We'll just kill Lazarus too. That's what they say. We'll just kill Lazarus too. They had to both kill Jesus and try to destroy the evidence of his power. We're just going to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Let's kill them both. Kill Jesus, the actual problem, and Lazarus who shows just how powerful he is. Now in the Gospels, the disciples are told, when it came to them, the one who is not against us is for us. Mark 9.40. When it comes to us, the one who's not against us is for us. But Jesus said, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. Do you see the difference there? The disciples are told, listen, if they're not against you, they're for you. Don't worry about it. But whoever's not for me is against me, Jesus said. Big difference there. When it comes to Jesus, there is no middle ground. You're either for him or you're against him. That's why somebody's not, if somebody's not against us, no big deal. But if you're not for Jesus, then you're against him. 
There's no middle ground. That's why Jesus is and always has been such a lightning rod. It's why they wanted to kill him. It's why Judas was going to to try to help them do just that. By the way, I don't know if you realize it, but but this event of what just happens with Mary anointing the feet of Jesus and Jesus rebuking Jesus. I cannot. Sorry, I can't. My names are all twisted. Jesus rebuking Judas? You don't want to get those wrong. Jesus Jesus rebukes Judas. You know what's going to happen right now for Judas? Mark and Matthew both tell us the same thing. It's not recorded in John, but Mark and Matthew tell us. It says, immediately after that's happened, then, it's the last straw for Judas, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. Now he's going to betray Jesus. Are you with Jesus? Are you against him? They're all against him. You know, Mary and Judas are great examples of both extremes. Nobody questions where Mary is. And nobody questions where Judas is. Judas will have no problem finding people to join with him. That brings us to the ultimate reality that I want to close with. And I want to go back to something I've told y'all before. Because I think it's really fitting here. There are plenty of things in this life that you can get out of balance. And in most things, the extremes are bad places to be. Almost everything, the extremes, are bad places to be. There is, there, you can get things out of balance. Except for one thing. Except for one thing. You can never love Jesus too much. And you can never be too devoted to Him. And you can never worship Him too much, or with too much passion. There are a lot of good things in this life, and there's a lot of things that we should invest our lives in. But worship is our highest service. Worship is our ultimate and highest service. A quote that I've shared with you before, and it's always in my head. It's that, and I don't even remember where it came from, but it just says, live your life for what will be vastly important 10,000 years from today. There are not many things on that list. You know what's going to be vastly important 10,000 years from today? The glory of God. You know what you're going to be doing? If you're a believer 10,000 years from today, you're going to be worshiping. Worship is our highest service, and Mary got it. Mary didn't care what anybody else thought. She didn't care how it looked. She was going to worship Jesus and do it in a sacrificial, extravagant way to pour out because she loved Him and she saw His worth. Jesus said it was a beautiful thing. She saw the worth of Jesus and there was no price of money or even dignity that was too high. She basically said, let me pour Let me pour out the most precious thing that I have and clean your dirty feet with my hair and do it with incredible gratitude and joy for who you are. 
I have no idea how much Mary understood about the bigger picture. But let's bring this home a little bit. The greatest work that Jesus was going to do was not raising her brother Lazarus from the dead. But that very week, he was going to die on the cross and bear the guilt and judgment for her sin and for Martha's sin and for Lazarus' sin and for your sin and for my sin. And he was going to be buried and then he was going to rise again victorious to give her life and to give you life and to give me life forever with him. She was overcome with joy because of what? And worship. Because of what Jesus had done. He raised her brother from the dead. I don't think she probably understood the magnitude of what Jesus was about to do. For her and for us. Church, what does this reality to me? What does this reality mean to you? My hope and prayer is that like Mary, it means unfettered worship. It means passion. It means joy. It means gratitude. It means I'm not so proper. I don't care how you worship or what you do. That's not the point. Do you love Jesus more than life itself? Look at who he is and what he's done. And this beautiful thing that shows that. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this incredible picture, Lord, of a woman who's, who's rebuked. To some degree, even her joy stolen because she's just worshiping you. And it's not proper in their mind. God, I pray that you will help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and to always remember the gospel and to remember, Lord, that maybe even more than just like Mary, we're like that prostitute who came and went to your feet, Lord. We're unclean. We're dirty. We do not deserve to be here. We don't deserve any of this, Lord. But in your incredible love and in your incredible grace, Lord, you have come to us, Lord, You have called us out. You have saved us and set us free. You've forgiven us and you've made us clean and made us whole, Lord. And you raised from the dead and you promised us the same thing in an eternity with you. God, I pray in our hearts we'll see this memorial of Mary and say, I I want my life to be all about the worship of Jesus. You're worthy, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for everything you've done, and we love you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.